0: Welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, And today, I'm really excited to be joined by John and Jean Komaroff. Um, John Komaroff is Hugh Foster Professor of African African-American Studies and of Anthropology at Harvard. And Jean Komaroff is Alfred North Whitehead Professor of African African-American Studies and of Anthropology at Harvard. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's you. great to be here. Thank you both it's very, very much for being here. So today, we're going to talk about your work theory from the South. And I think what I'd like to do is start off by asking you, what is the... And I'm a 10th grade teacher and I, I teach the period roughly from the 16th century to the 21st century. But but um, I'd say the course starts with a history of capitalism and then a history of the Enlightenment and modernity. And I'm, I fear that after reading your work, I've been doing it all wrong. So I'm wondering if maybe you could start by doing two things. One talking about the way that modernity is generally taught, and then to explain what, if anything, is wrong with that story. Okay, well, we're going
1: to do this, if we may, live as in team tag style. Sounds so good. I'll say a few words and Gina will pick up and so on. Let's begin with this. We learned history in much the way you, you describe it. That is to say, uh, from a Eurocentric perspective that saw modernity as basically a European project that emerged out of the Enlightenment, uh, that grew with the rise of industrial capitalism, uh, that has as both its project and its motivating force, a teleology that moves from pre-modern to modern times, Constantly perfecting itself, constantly pursuing progress, looking for universal truths. And it sees this literally as a universal, a uh, world historical project. And we have a, an ideology that arises out of it, which is deeply inscribed in the liberal project uh, that we are makers of our own history, uh, that that history is largely made by uh, big women and men, um, that it is the artworking, as it were, of, of, of individual initiative, and that, in effect, modernity is its constant refinement. Our work starts out from Africa. And, in fact, from our perspective, that is a narrative that justified colonialism, that justified empire, that justified the rise of, of capitalism as a hegemonic form. But if you look at the world from it's many elsewhere. the global south, for example, and we look at the world from Africa, particularly, you realize that actually, there are other narratives. For one thing, many of the things we see as European actually had their births in many other places. For example, as uh, the late Jack Goody wrote in The Theft of History, many of our concepts like romantic love, like the idea of, of individual sanctity, actually had their precursors in the Eastern Africa, as did uh, forms of mathematics. Africa had empires long before Europe did. And it also had its own modernities. In fact, some of those modernities were extremely reflective. For example, in South Africa in the 19th century, the mid late um, 1800s, at class intellectuals on the Eastern seaboard of South Africa had debates about what African modernity was to be uh, and how it related to European modernity. In other words, there are many stories. Um, and in fact, our idea of modernity is not a universal truth at all, it is a cultural construct a construct that emerges out of our own particular, peculiar, and very partial history.
2: And if I may add, Lev, that uh, along with this, what comes from this is that the project of modernity was always a multilateral construction, east, west, north, and south. There might be another way of saying that the actual birth of modernity as we have known it as industrial, capitalist, global modernity, uh, was born with the slave trade and the the extraction of labor from Africa to the new world and the birth of a new kind of system of production that was the kind of advent, if you like, of the factory system. One might also say that Africa, contra the views of the likes of Hegel, for instance, or the European missionaries that we studied in the 19th century, had always been in the world, had never not been tied up not only with international trade and exchange, but also cultures that took in theories of the world that were very much what modernity was trying to do, which is to link the local to the translocal, to connect and to understand the ways in which the world itself is put together in multilateral and multidimensional ways. So the the things that we associate with modernity themselves, can have many different starting points. There was a BBC program about 25 years ago now that talked about the birth of democracy. And it didn't start in Greece. It started with African systems of law and custom in Southern Africa, among the Tswana people. We have a highly developed notion of debate, discourse, laws, customs, and collective decision-making. So we have to think differently about where modernity comes from and both violence. as a, and, and what it is. Uh, both as an ideology and as as a practice, as a condition of being in the world. And one of the things that we argue also in uh, theory from the South is that it's not simply a vector that moves from Europe outwards for good or ill. Not only has it been multidimensional, but in many ways right now, given the way that late globalization has worked and the incredible incremental quest of capital for ever more profit, if you like, and wealth, things are moving faster in many ways outside of Euro-America right now than they are at that center. We see things that we might call late or neoliberal modernity more clearly often at what Europe sees as its peripheries
0: than at the center itself. I want to I come, come back to that in, in a couple of minutes because I, I think that that's, that's fascinating. In your understanding of, of, say, the 17th century, is there a center... Of the world, or because it's so multidimensional, is that a bad way to understand the, the world? No, you know, I, I think
1: that we have to understand multidimensionalities. After all, <clears throat> the, the, the fact that, that um, European empires required to expand um, to the East and to the South Uh, wasn't, in fact, um, a a coincidence, as Jean pointed out, uh, the extraction of of slaves in the 17th century, on which, of course, uh, the the forms of finance that were going to to fund the rise of of industrial capitalism and the agrarian revolution as well, uh, made the, 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 the global order into a global order ab initio, uh, after all, uh, the Portuguese were moving into Africa in the 1400s uh, in order to extract value, in order to <clears throat> create the, the, the wherewithal to establish militaries and so on, uh, and pursue their own nation-making projects. So the idea that, that uh, there is one center uh, just makes no sense of, of global history.
2: But at the same time, as I may yeah. say, there are points at which things come together with origins elsewhere, but but they incubate with intensity at certain points. Industrialization in Britain, for instance, the triangular trade that, that has a particular kind of vector that moves energetically across the Atlantic. The shift now that I was referring to were, in a sense, Europe having de-industrialized itself by exporting its working class elsewhere and producing the centers of actual production now in China, in Eastern Europe, in, various, in Latin America, in Africa, has in a sense, pushed that center inadvertently elsewhere. And if you look, for instance, at the vectors that are making the contemporary world, they've moved from the kind of north-south uh, and south-north of Europe and its others to the east-west axis of things like China and Africa, for instance, where there's a tremendous amount of demographic, I mean, factors both demographic yeah, and, and industrial uh, and, and, and involved with kind of technological intensity move from various points on the map. But they are the center points of processes that are multilateral. They draw things to the center and they spew them out. Yeah? And, mm-hmm. and the hot spots move. And what determines what is hot at any point in time is often something that looks different in retrospect.
0: I see. I mean, I guess I'm wondering, if you have the classic, you know, sort of what, what I learned in school and, and actually there's a philosopher, this British philosopher named John Gray, who writes about, I don't know if you guys have read him, but- yeah. um, Yes, yes. Okay, so he's been really important for my understanding of what modernity is, right? And so he sort of makes the argument, modernity comes you know, after the scientific revolution in Europe, when you say, you know, water has universal properties, rocks have universal properties, we understand the universal properties of this thing called gravity, And so we can say, this is what a rock is, or this is what water is. And so why can't we say, this is what a human is like? And so when we start to say humans are like X, it then follows that we should create political and economic systems which best fit humanity. And so if that's my understanding, then I can say, all right, you know, after the enlightenment, you now have something called modernity. But I guess what I'm asking is if that's not the story, then does it make sense at all if there are multiple modernities, if there are, if there are forms of modernity, say, in Africa, does it make sense at all to even introduce this concept to, to students? Does it mean anything? Well,
1: well it depends how one does it. First of all, can we make a distinction, which we make in theory from the South, which is really important, especially given what you've just said about John Gray? We often confuse two things. One is modernization. By modernization, we mean uh, the uh, progressive contemporaneity of things like industrial systems, infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. And modernization, uh, there is a fair degree of of agreement about what it is, although there is a lot of disagreement about its implications and its values. Modernization, uh, and of course, it's it's a part of, uh, it's the basis of, of a lot of, theory writing, especially in sociology, politics and economics, uh, has a very particular development has a very particular idea. And of course, industrialization is its core. Now, of course, we have something that some people are prone to calling the Fourth Industrial Revolution, uh, which, of course, is about the digitization of of precisely uh, the the modernization project. But modernity is something else. Modernity is an ideology. <clears throat> it is a construction of the way that we think the world ought to be. And that is a very different thing. For example, uh, there are any number of debates about whether uh, modernization as a technical um, technical phenomen- uh, f- phenomenon is uh, in any sense Related to modernity in a one to one form. After all, the ways in which, for example, um, some populations see the coming of a machine age are very different. Uh, they see it not as progress, but as destruction. And indeed, we ourselves have a very ambivalent view um, about modernization itself because it destroys as much as it produces. So for example, um, if one thinks about um, uh, gentrification, gentrification is a form of modernization, except that it destroys communities. Now, what does one value in that instance? If you are, for example, an um, inner city, uh, African-American population, subject to gentrification and the destruction of a community, does one applaud it in the cause of economic development, or does one decry it in the, the, the name of the destruction of community? Now, if you're looking at that project from Africa, the answer would be simple. Uh, gentrification isn't worth the destruction of community. If you look at it from the perspective of America, gentrification is justified constantly um, as the production of an economic good. Those are very different views about the way that modernization
0: and modernity relate to one another. You know, part of the beginning of my school year in 10th grade is talking about the birth of capitalism. This connects back to something that, Gene, you were, you were speaking about a few minutes ago. I Sort of found the work of Eric Williams this summer, and I've been reading as much as I can about him and talking to people yeah. on the show about Eric Williams. How different is you know sort of what you were saying about the, the birth of capitalism being totally wrapped up in the transatlantic slave trade. Is your thesis more or less the Williams thesis, or is it, is it somewhat different
2: I think I would would say that the slave trade has a tremendous amount to do with the birth of capitalism and indeed capitalist modernity, hyphenated, is one of the visions we have of the way that the modern world has come to be. So there was something, that wonderful book by Barry Unsworth called Sacred Hunger, which asked the question of what was it that motivated the quest for the triangular trade in the first place? And what he argues, it was a certain kind of Protestant Viberian sense that human beings are put on earth. This is the birth of humanism that you were mentioning, by a providence that doesn't tell you what to do, but gives you the benign capacities to produce good and redeem yourself by by laying up treasures, by exploring, by pursuing knowledge. uh, And that that in, in turn drove the whole idea that some would call greed was good. And others would say, you know, enhancing the production of value uh, by, for instance, you know, perfecting labor. And there's a whole theory of of labor and redemption, but also labor, of course, and enslavement. And so what lay behind the triangular trade was something that that itself had a history that's part of that earlier thing you were saying about the way modernity develops as a kind of view of the universalization uh, of, of humankind, as self-making creatures, not necessarily secular, but no longer simply, if you like, the instruments of the great chain of being, right? So that view suggests that there's a double birth um, that comes with, 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 with the rise of capitalism and indeed what takes in slavery and human nature and species being. And that also is the sense of a generic being, a, a, a generic nature of humankind that separates human beings from animals, but makes them also knowing, being, loving, reasoning, law-abiding or law-making creatures. And that gives birth to something which we call liberalism, in the sense that the the world is is modern because human beings come together in this kind of Hobbesian way and decide that they need a social contract. There is something which we make together as society, which makes a kind of rule-given universal kind of existence that governs knowledge and rights and and citizenship and politics and so on. But my view is that that view of liberalism, which comes in a way out of the experience of the growth of capitalism, first in its mercantile form with the rise of commodities, notions of money as a universal equivalent and so on, coexists in a contradictory relationship with capitalism. And there are various accommodations And this is where the Western idea of modernity, and it's become, of course, the global one, has both a positive dimension to it and one that, in another sense, lands up with the Anthropocene and the kind of Faustian bargain that human beings make with their own godlike qualities and ultimately ends with the destruction of everything. And the ways in which we tame capitalism in terms of liberalism and the way they live together during the rise of the modern nation state and now, in a sense, outstrip that, 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 that reckoning in a time of market fundamentalism and a kind of global, if you like, disorder. Uh, it seems to me to be part of a kind of counter-history. It's partly the Williams thesis, but it's also one that says that the ideological aspects of modernity have their positive senses of creating a perfectible world, and it has to do with generic humanism and increasingly trying to to, 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 to live, this is where, for instance, emancipation also came out of the story of slavery, right? A contradiction between turning people into commodities and things. Huh? So it can be a force for emancipation, inclusion, the ever greater effort to make equal human capacities and potential and rights in the world. But the other side of it, which is always this kind of question of the sort of Midas touch, the, 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 the pushing of human capacities to be and do and to excel and, and, and ultimately to destroy. And that, to me, would be my view of the phenomenon, right? I don't know how much it accords with your reading of, of, of Williams, but it puts the wrinkle that there's always this, this, this relationship between the liberal universalizing reach of modernity and, and that other side, which is, has its, its exploited, exploitative dehumanizing quality built
0: into it. Sorry, just to be clear, just to be clear, is the liberalizing force a positive one, or does the liberalizing does the liberalizing force also lead to dehumanization?
2: In itself, I think it is is seen to it is a force for the equalization you know, of, of, of humankind, human species being. Yeah. Which at the same time as it it speaks to uh, this 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 effort to uplift to include to ever include, if you like, the the reach of the human family. And of course, now we have it reaching beyond humans also to other forms of life, right? In the expansion, ever-expansion circle of that inclusion of the positive and the right and the... But the way that it is supported is also around the idea of the infinite perfectibility of human capacity to know, to produce value, and ostensibly to do that on behalf of everybody, but ultimately to do it in ways that dehumanize by their very definition.
1: Can I, uh, Liv, may I add just two thoughts to what Gina said? I I think that it's important to reflect on how one would write, as it were, a totalizing archaeology of the history of capitalism. Capitalism, after all, is an abstraction, right? It is not a thing. It is a historical formation constantly in historical, um, in, in, in labile formation. And it has, as it were, to me at least, it's born out of the confluence of many things, a very long history of long distance trade, uh, of forms of of mercantilism out of the Arab world, out of the Asian world, uh, out of um, the the forms of of, um, commerce that that occur around the Indian Ocean, out of the slave trade, all of which are capital producing on the one hand and labor producing on the other. And in effect, of course, uh, it is their their confluence that um, emerges as it were with abolition to ideologize the notion of free labor um, and commodity production in the way that becomes theorized by the likes of Ricardo and Marx, et cetera, et cetera. So it seems to me that 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 history or rather that that archeology span is an extremely complex one made up of confluences that are not really theorized in, in monolithic dialectics. But in in uh, in multiple forms that, that, that congeal into one another, and the moments of their of their congealing are critical. The the agricultural revolution in Britain, <clears throat> um, post evolution, the emergence of factory labour uh, in England and, and elsewhere, and so on. So it seems to me that if one were to write a dialectical history, one would concentrate on the, those confluences. So um, one cannot do this without understanding the history of racial capitalism, slavery, abolition, all coming together as, it were, as a series of dialectical workings. The other point that I wanted to make about liberalism uh, and your question, you know, uh, is it a positive or a negative thing? That's a very difficult one to yeah. read because we're, it's a perspectival one. We all think, for example, of liberalism as producing the gift of the law. The law, rights, et cetera, are to us, as it were, uh, the mythic and the fetishized object through which social order um, and human equality are founded. But actually, if one looks at the same thing, if one looks at law, for example, as Walter Benjamin, one sees law as an instrument of violence. After all, think about how settler colonialism worked. Settler colonialism worked by inducing indigenous populations across the world into title, into treaty, all of which were forms of dispossession. Uh, Contracts look as though they engage between equal parties, but they're not. Contracts give those who control the means of violence a form of an instrument of dispossession. So many of the things we look at as, as it were, the benign accomplishments of liberalism have their other side. Uh, their their potentiality for violence, their potentiality for disposition. And we see it now, for example, um, with the, the end of contemporary labor, where formerly those who made up, for example, America's labor force, now make up a very large proportion of its incarcerated population. People who once produced commodities were now made into commodities. And in that sense, uh, some of the, the histories of racial capitalism, uh, of the history of slavery, are simply, as it were, unfolding into a a, a, uh, a coda, a new chapter.
2: One could we- say the same also about the history, for instance, of evolution. Which you know, there've mm-hmm. been wars in America when they all thought we would fight again around mm-hmm. curricula as to whether evolution should be taught in schools. Yeah, evolution is the kind of you know the 19th century discovery of, you know, the, the, the perfection of human species being, right? And, and it, 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 it speaks to the, you know, the, the evolution of the generic category of the human, which is meant to be, in this case, inclusive. Yeah? At the same time, evolution is a developmental theory. Yeah? And it is constantly used, as it was during colonialism, to account for the fact that some people should be the masters of others that everybody's educable, everybody can reach the level of knowledge. The Bible can be translated into all languages and bring us into the great Christian moral family, but some are not yet there. They first got to learn, they are in racial adolescence and slowly, you know, uh, th- th- they move, but at different rates. So this idea, not everybody's in the same time. It's not only whether modernity has a center, it also has a contemporaneity, but there's some people, you know, in this famous account, you know, um, of, of, of Johannes Fabian time and the other, some right. people are not yet there. They're on the periphery. They're still learning. And yeah, that justifies yeah. ostensibly. This is the ideology. Right. So this justified under colonialism why some people had law and others had custom, you know? why some people had rights and others didn't, why some people were not yet covered by, you know, uh, Benjamin Franklin, everybody under the, the, the Republic is included, but those who are fully evolved. And it's amazing how developmental logic and the the whole industry of global development sort of plays that tune again and again. When will Africa finally take off into modernity?
0: Right. I mean, it's the the language of the IMF and the World Bank, right? Absolutely. Which is an extremely
1: violent language. I mean, the the number of people across Africa who have died of starvation at times when there have been agricultural surpluses because of structural
0: adjustment is huge. Right. I mean, it's, it's so interesting because we learn about the Haitian revolution just after the French revolution, which we learned about just after the enlightenment. And the kids are always kind of like, you know, how is it that you have all these, you know, quote unquote, enlightened people in France who just can't see that that slavery is wrong? And, you know, I don't have a great answer for them, except that, you know, there's there's too much money at stake. So I'm, I guess, Jean, just to go back for a sec, would you make the argument that the liberalism, the liberalism of the enlightenment France was kind of incomplete it, it couldn't uh, it, it, it couldn't trump the money that was to be made
2: you know I think the point is this that they're complex mediations things stand mm. between you know the, the the interests and the rationalization yeah mm. so that this is where something like evolution comes in and it's interesting that just at the point that we begin to say all men are equal there's no such thing as race men and women even right is a very moment where we say, but, but, but in fact, they're not all equal now because of the process of the way that evolution has worked, right? And whether the theories had to do with tropicality or whether they had to do... So, for instance, in the whole history of labor in South Africa, you know, in the effort, when, they, when mining was discovered, you know, when, when, when in fact it was discovered that Africans knew that there were, there were gold deposits and diamonds and there was a scramble to get hold of their... their their land and take hold of this this source of wealth. At the same time, you have missionaries who are saying, you know, that these people need to be educated into the ability to share into this wealth, but they're not yet ready. And in fact, work, learning to work because what they do in the fields, what we see Africans do by way of agriculture is just scratching the surface of of the country. They're not exploiting that land. Let them go into industrial contexts. with a Bible in one hand and the desire for just wealth, uh, worth, you know, earn wages in the other, and they will learn through labor. So learning through labor was seen to be an educative thing. Now, those mines were incredibly dangerous and, and exploitative places. And the people who did the most dangerous work were Africans who were being brought in, often from mission stations, who'd been educated into having civilized wants, and desires, and ambition, being industrious was the word. But but what was important was that they would do this through the discipline of honest labor. They would sell their labor, which is their human birthright, and slowly they would learn how to use money, how to be disciplined, how to have watches and learn about time. And when you look at it in retrospect, I mean, there you had people, and this is all the arguments about Cecil John Rhodes, the mining magnet. He's one of these people who believed that labor had an uplifting quality. And that and that this is what Africans needed to, in a sense, you know, heat up the evolutionary process, as it were, in the in their move towards, you know, the uh, full participation in economy, society and
1: polity. But, you know, the, 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 that's an interesting question it's as well. It's very interesting. You know, why people can't see things are wrong. Why can't Americans see the paying people mm-hmm. a, a pittance uh, right now in this economy is wrong? Yeah. Uh, why don't we see that the grotesqueries of Amazon and Google are wrong? Why don't we see that not taxing, taxing the rich is stupid? Why don't we see that, that um, incarcerating huge numbers of African-Americans uh, is, is venal? Um, these are all deeply irrational. I mean, you know, when we live much of our lives in South Africa and the questions we get whenever we go back are just these, can't Americans see uh strangely contradictory, they failed
0: state ideas. I think some of it, I think about a lot. I think some of it is, and I think it connects to your work and this myth of this myth maybe of progress and modernity, is that a lot of especially well off Americans cling to the idea that well, things are better than ever before. It may not seem like things are better, but actually, if you look at the data, everyone's way better off than they were even forty years ago. And so you point to evidence around they say, well, yeah, you know, that's that's anecdotal. You really got to go to the data to see that people in the United States are better off and people in the global South, well, they're really doing great. You know, one has to be
1: extremely skeptical about algorithmic and statistical logic. And Americans believe that that the unemployment rate is 3%, but... uh, we don't usually look at the real rate, which is the employment, uh, the employment population ratio, which is close to sixty percent. In other words, 40% of Americans who could actually be working or not working in the in the, um, in the unemployment rate, we don't count the incarcerated, we don't count those who have given up looking for labor because there isn't any, uh, V-Day the inner cities of Chicago, of Baltimore, of Detroit and continuing naming them for the, for the next half hour. Um, we don't count the indigent whom we don't support either. So the notion that uh, it all looks better is, The question is for who? And Uh, who's
2: looking? You know, you you need in many parts of America, you need 2.5 to 3 jobs uh, uh, to be able to to, to break free of poverty. And and, and the theories about austerity, you know, that if just you cut back and you allow wealth to to accumulate in the upper sections, the 0.1% of the population, it will trickle down. Show me where it trickles down. What evidence is there of that? If one Mm -hmm. looks at other things like perinatal mortality rates or relative life expectancy, or for indeed what was shown <laughs> under our eyes during the pandemic, for God's sake, who was dying yeah? and at what rates and why. And we still try and struggle. Uh, you know, you listen to the liberal media and they will say, well, you know, there are obvious reasons for this. But there's still are all kinds of rationalizations given, not to mention the fact that we, we still live in a world here of kind of conspiratorial thinking where none of the statistics make any sense at all because we believe things like the election being stolen. So the moat is always in the, you know, the eye of the other person. Uh, but when you look at it from, with fresh eyes from outside, you say to yourself, if they can be so disillusioned at what appears to be the pinnacle you know, of global knowledge and production, then God help the rest of us. But yeah. at the same time, the mere way that we are arguing here suggests that there is also a redemptive quality to the ideals of liberalism. You know? Otherwise, what would we be arguing about? We're still arguing for equality. We're still arguing for inclusion. We're arguing for democracy. We thought we would never have to argue for it again, but we're arguing for it now. So we we are inside that thing, and one takes the best of what it promises, the most exclusive, the most far-reaching, and one hopes that one can extend it. If only liberalism could make its promises true, we would live in a much better world. So I think that's the point. It's not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but to say we all live inside that system, some more critically than others, and trying to make what many of us would regard as the best deal for the most people, um, inclusively, and also these days the most sustainable, for God's sake. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're living in a world where the future of the next... I worry that my grandchildren won't have grandchildren, Mm -hmm. okay? This is a very real thing that my parents didn't worry about. But I worry about it in terms which are the best of a kind of critical, enlightenment liberalism.
1: A, I mean, I this, this is, of course, the great, the, the reason that we are lamenting um, the, the sensible death of liberalism is because in its most enlightened form, it carried a promise. It also carried a promise of sane political argument about the possible perfectibility of the planet. What would equality? What would sustainability? What would justice mean? We've given up on all of those concepts in reality. I mean, we, we gesture toward them, but we sanction um, a, a legal system that is designed to disenfranchise women right now, right? Mm-hmm. And women's bodies that that disenfranchise huge numbers of the population uh, from their most basic voting rights, etc. And how can we not see this as as an extraordinary attack on the, Enlight- I, you know, I, I don't think that we're living in enlightenment in the U S anymore. I think that what we've got to fight for is its restoration. And then we can start arguing about what kind of, of society we live in right now. We
0: live in Adam Smith's um, nightmare, which is a society of strangers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to respect your time. So I want to ask you about the second part of your story in theory from the South, where, and tell me if I'm wrong about the argument. I think you're making the argument that if we want to understand where Euro-America is going, we need to look to the south. And so what we've seen in, in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, say, over the last 40 years, we're starting to see in the United States and in Europe. And we can see that everywhere from the deindustrialization to the way that, that cities are are built. And, and to poverty levels and inequality. Is that the, the argument that you're making? Yeah, essentially it is. Essentially what, what we're saying
1: is that um, because of the history of colonialism and its forms of violence, precisely the issues of the history of capitalism that we are talking about earlier, um, the Global South was never permitted to develop into the nation state form as existed in, in Europe. Uh, its economies were there to be extracted. Uh, the global south was underdeveloped in the name of the development of, of the global north. As a result, its vulnerabilities to, as it were, the dystopic ends of, of um, modern um, capitalism are very obvious. But what we're saying is that you know, the story of Africa isn't a story of decivilization. It's not a story of, as it were, a basket case. Quite the opposite. In Africa, in Latin America, in South South Asia, what we see are both the utopic and the dystopic elements of the future. We see exploitation at its worst, hence the scandals about the nature of child labor, um, people earning nothing or very close to it, um, factories that move in and out, including, by the way, very high-end technological, Um, forms of of industrial development, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So we we see exploitation, we see um, impoverishment, we see starvation, Uh, the lines, the food lines in, in Texas, Uh, during the the COVID pandemic, reminded us of food lines in in parts of Africa. At the same time, we also see the opposite. We see populations produce extremely creative informal economies. We see all sorts of new forms of politics, of democracy, um, of uh, forms of of entrepreneurialism, uh, of um, if you like, um, informal legal systems, et cetera, et cetera. So we see both, we see the dialectics to which towards which we're moving. And think about right now um, with the, the issues of, of, of um, uh, labor problems in the U.S., uh, more and more people are turning to the gig economy. The gig economy is basically an informal economy which has existed in Africa now for 50, 60, 70 years. Um, in that sense, many of what we think of as now experimental edges of our own are in effect... Um, predicted and and um, uh, forsworn in in the global south.
2: See, I, and it comes back ultimately, I think, <clears throat> to the question of liberalism. The the, co- the colonies were the kind of backlots, if you like, the backstage of European nation states as they developed into, particularly the kind of high point of of the the, the liberal welfare state. Right, um, and and a lot of the wealth, the extraction the citizens' rights, the sorts of things that were associated with the perfection, and probably most so um, in the European welfare state system, were done at the expense of colonies where, as because of the kind of evolutionary thinking and also the exploitativeness in the north, uh, were not given those virtues. So, for instance, the South African colonial states, India, South Africa, elsewhere in Africa, for instance, people were citizens, uh, subjects, they never had had real citizens' rights, right? And because, ostensibly, they were not yet evolved enough to have law and property, they lived in collective, what was seen to be, you know, a customary law. They were exploited by labor contracts that would never have been tolerated in the more evolved liberal systems of the North. In the North, capitalism was tamed by the rise of a certain kind of liberal citizenship, right? And a welfare state that sought at its pinnacle to redistribute, to equalize, yeah, to, 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 to cushion, if you like, the harsh face of capitalism with the promise of liberalism. That didn't happen in the South. Yeah? It didn't happen in colonies. And when it was meant to happen after the end of colonialism, yeah, the, 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 the deck was so stacked that it was almost impossible uh, for post-colonial states to really offer those sorts of, of benefits to their populations. And when they tried to do, it was extremely difficult. Colonies didn't enter a level playing field. Long story short, the most intensive competitive forms of post-Cold War uh, uh, um, capitalism in the North have increasingly taken away those liberal benefits. In the competitive, the race for greater profits, the rights of, 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 of um, workers. Yeah. of share. The, the 60s in America was the high point of the arguments for what were Uh, forms of inclusion, you know, moral rights, kind of cultural equalization, the rise of neoliberalism that followed was about turning northern uh, uh, economies and societies much more into their colonial counterparts, right? And people in the north are now beginning to experience what people in the south have had for a very long time to deal with, right? Uh, The the lack of of secure employment. The fact that most people lived in informal economies which now are becoming the new norm according to the eu in the north because we've shipped our labor to places where it's cheaper right? so what we have here is a kind of the dawning in the north of conditions that in the south people have not only lived with for a long time but have devised ways of living with and trying to transcend right? so we're running behind them in efforts for instance efforts to deal with basic income grants and so on new forms of of redistribution are happening in the South, not in the North. They may migrate North, but they're not really, maybe
0: Scandinavia is slightly different. When you're describing the North and the welfare states, you know, I know there was a a big compromise in the United States between big labor and big capital, but the description of the North that that you're describing feels in some ways like very European. Like when I think about the, the life here for many people living in African-American ghettos, feels like to describe this as a, a liberal democracy, maybe it is, but really only for a couple decades after the sixties. Do you make sort of make a distinction between, well, two questions, one, different parts of the North and two, you know, I remember reading Malcolm X last year saying something to the extent of, you know, African-Americans are are colonized. Does that description make sense to you? Absolutely. I'm talking about Europe because I believe that that's where
2: this happened to a greater or lesser degree, because Europe's not one thing either. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting question as to why Scandinavia, that's a time for another day, maybe perfected this more uh, than other parts of Europe, although Scandinavia also has a very exclusionist view in terms of, you know, including others in their utopia. But I would see America as a settler colonial society. And that's why the parallel with South Africa in our work comes up again and again. America internally has had, and you know, this is the whole history of of, of slavery and and the the, the story of emancipation and so on, is in microcosm, North and South. And you keep saying, John keeps saying, we're fighting the Civil War again and again and again in America. But when I talk, I mean, during the very 60s, it was seen to be the acme, if you like, of, of, of a kind of a, a triumph of a certain kind of liberalism in America, My, you know, um, people like Martin Luther King were, were, were killed in the fight for ordinary sanitation workers in the Black South, right? The story is very different and very divided here. And it continues to be, right? And so I don't, I, I see America as different here. For certain populations, uh, we reached you know, a very high point of communal care, but never that, never the inclusive sense of a kind of social democratic citizenship
1: I think that you saw in the North.
2: Well, and Canada course, may be
1: a little different because it's an amalgam. And again, mm-hmm. of course, the, the history of American slavery is very different to Europe's role in the slave trade. Um, And the long history of slavery will cast a shadow over America for a very long time. And indeed, uh, the civil rights movement was, as it were, a moment in that history. So, yes, America uh, America is different and the same. Um, Many of of its elements share uh, the elements of of global capitalism, and others are particular to uh, its history as a settler colony. Uh, America isn't nearly as modern as it thinks it is, uh, or modernist as it thinks it is. Um, it is a very complex society, which is very
0: difficult to speak about in one voice anyway. So the last question is my dad, sometimes when he listens to the show, he complains that it, 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 makes, him, it makes him depressed. So I want to start a new uh, final segment and you, you both are the first guests who I'm gonna ask this question, but I hope to keep asking the question. <laughs> What is the thing, the trend in the world that makes you most excited or most optimistic for the future? You want to go? Yeah.
2: You know, we often tell the story that in the darkest days of apartheid in South Africa, we thought there was no hope, Uh, but, but history turned differently, turned out differently. And it's not as if South Africa is a utopia, it's still not fully decolonized by any manner of means but things transformed in ways that we couldn't anticipate. Look, I think that looking at the covered circumstances is very interesting from that point of view, was in some ways it revealed the horrors and inequities of a grasping world uh, to, to flagrantly, right? And, and what we saw in America was the politicization of, of the pandemic in ways that were predictable and awful, uh, and in fact, down to the very question of life itself, um, were, were reinforced existing inequities. At the same time, there were all kinds of other sorts of recognitions that have come out of this. Yeah. Local level organizing, an awareness of a good deal of the demography, of the, the, re, the real demography and inequity of the world in which we live. And elsewhere, for instance, in South Africa, where one we have just been, the impact of Uh, COVID, uh, is very different. People do not have the moral luxury of of, of simply lamenting how this could happen to them uh, because their future lies before them still, and they have had other pandemics and many other challenges, and they've invented all kinds of extraordinary ways of understanding, of helping, of collaborating, of learning from the circumstances in which they found themselves, and there have been many examples of extraordinary collaboration. that that have come out of this and connected to this, the fact that COVID itself is part of the whole environmental disaster of our current world and the over-exploitation of everything. And and the movement that has occurred, particularly among younger people, uh, around environmentalism, which is not just to wring their hands and say we have to learn to die in the Anthropocene, but is to hold the older generation accountable for the degree to which they have mortgaged the future generations uh, to come. So there's a lot of insight there. There's a lot of creative politics and there are all kinds of ways in which people who have to make a future are thinking constructively about doing that.
1: Yeah, I I would echo that as well. Um, You know, as Jean says, our experience in the apartheid years, who would ever have predicted the end of apartheid five years before? And you know- It's not over, of course. It's not over in its new forms, but who would have ever uh, predicted the end of that particularly ugly regime? Uh, unfortunately, um, apartheid capital capitalism still exists in, in some respects, but nonetheless, the world has changed there and nobody would have predicted it. there have been many moments that nobody would have predicted and history has a funny way of, of defying us. You know, I think that the, the, the greatest, as it were, uh, argument for hope is hope itself. I think one cannot give up. Uh, these are dark times. I, you know, wh- one cannot be uh, in any sense um, um, uh, over-optimistic about them. Wh- one cannot. Uh, be, um, as it were, rose-colored spectacles um, in viewing any of what's going on right now. We're living in dire times. But the point about dire times is that they have the capacity for producing their dialectical opposites, for producing democracy movements. America needs a democracy movement. It is time also um, to accord Black Lives Matter, the kind of mass support that it deserves, demands, and ought to have. Uh, The hope in hope is that this is a moment because of its very direness that calls upon us to fight the things we see, creating, as it were, America as a caricature of itself. Otherwise, the counter-enlightenment will continue to darken our doors. Your father is right. One has to look for optimism. One has to look for for, uh, hope. One sees it in all kinds of creative things, the extraordinary forms of, of art. That are being produced, extraordinary forms of theatre and of musics that are being produced in the face of the direness of the moment. Let them inspire, let them, as it were, work their way into grassroots consciousness. Um, These are moments in which, in effect, being creative, inviting an active younger generation, in fact, to lead us out of the darkness, rather than to, as it were, gerontocratize uh, our society further and further, because gerontocracy and democracy uh, are mutually antagonistic to one another, as we ought to have learned over the last five years. Uh, Let's hope. And let's put hope in hope.
2: You know, finally, to you in your circumstances, Hannah Arendt talked about natality. Right? One's got to believe in life itself, and the fact that bringing forth life always creates what are at present unforeseen possibilities, and a commitment to that life. And that's, I think, the way one has to think.
0: Uh, thank you. Yeah, just to give that some context. Yeah, we're we're expecting a baby next week. So, yeah, congratulations. Thanks. Okay. Thank you very much. And thank
2: with you. It comes new hope.